Hi everyone, I'm Ken. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC and adding my welcome to Rods. Wherever you're connecting with us from, I'm very glad that you are. Today is our modified annual international service. Obviously, it's a little bit different to what we normally do each year, given that no one is sitting here as we film this and you are watching it in a range of places. We haven't had any dances or songs in other languages as we usually do. Nevertheless, it has been good to be both encouraged and challenged by what is taking place for just some of God's people around the world. We have had God's word read for us already, and as always, we need God's enabling to both understand and apply it. So let's pray to that end. Lord God, God of the nations, we thank you so much that you have given us your clear word enabled us to have uh, people that can teach it to us, to be able to be in a community that know and love your word. And so as we spend some time now uh, reflecting on parts of it, we again ask that you would enable us not only to understand it, but by your spirit, that you would enable us to actually live it out to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Making assumptions can be a dangerous thing. The other day I came home to find this note left for me on the bench. For those of you who are not up on their modern day Aussie slang, eat me is quite a rude insult. But the truth is in this case, it's actually not an insult at all. It was written to me because my kids know me so well. They know that when I come home from a ride or come home from work, if there are easily accessible snacks, I am very likely to eat them. I've done it so often that it's a bit of a running joke in our house. Now, on this particular day, Amelia had done some baking while I was out, and she left the note sitting in front of the fresh, hot, homemade cheese and bacon rolls that were on the bench. The note was actually the opposite of an insult. It was a love letter of four words, Dad can eat me. That is, eat the treats with a clear conscience. See, that's the danger of assumptions. We can have some relevant information and believe that we have all the facts that we need, not realising that we are unaware of other important information. We jump to conclusions that are the exact opposite of what is true. We can misunderstand others' motives. We can judge unfairly. Assumptions can be dangerous. Another time that I encountered assumptions was in Thailand. Before we moved to Wollongong almost three years ago, I lived with my family in Thailand for 12 years. Once I had learnt enough Thai to have some conversations with the locals, one of the first phrases that I heard them say about Christianity was Satsana Krit, Satsana Farang. It translates as Christianity is the white foreigner's religion. It's a succinct way of saying that Thais already have their own beliefs. Thais in general are very happy to talk about religion, much happier than Australians. But the idea of changing to the Westerners' religion doesn't enter into their thinking. The assumption behind their statement is that different nationalities have different religions by birth. Because Thailand is 95% Buddhist, many Thais assume that other countries must have their own religion too. And so when they learnt that I was a Christian and was from Australia, it confirmed their assumption that every Australian must be a Christian. Now, 
Anyone who has lived in Australia for any amount of time knows that this is not the case. There is a much higher chance that your next door neighbour is not a Christian than is one. The same is true of friends at work, at university, at weekend sport. Our experience gives us the additional information that corrects the assumption. Where you were born and your heritage does play an important part, but they don't determine your religion. Now, I believe this assumption is not unique to ties. In fact, I think that one of the most frequently made wrong assumptions in the Bible is to do with who God's people are. And so today, as we celebrate our international service, we're going to look at some of the information from both the Old and New Testament that clears up the question, who does God welcome into his family? Who does God welcome into his family? Psalm 96 is one of many passages in the Old Testament that gives us an important insight into this question. It says a whole lot of things which we won't look at, but what it makes super clear with regards to our question is who is expected to praise God. Have a look at just some of the lines. Verse 1, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. Verse 3, declare his glory among the nations. Verse 7, ascribe to the Lord all you families of the nations. Verse 9, tremble before him all the earth. These are just some of the ways that sing, even in Old Testament times, that God's family was never intended to be limited to the nation of Israel. God's plan has always been that people from every nation would be among those singing his praises, which gives us the further information we need to clarify some other facts from Israel's history, to correct some wrong assumptions. After Adam and Eve sinned, God chose Abraham. Abraham's grandson Jacob was renamed Israel and became the father of the nation Israel, receiving the blessing of God. When Israel was then rescued from Egypt and brought to the promised land, it was taken as proof that God was only interested in his chosen people, the nation of Israel. But ironically, as Israel, his chosen people, sang Psalm 96, the truth shone through that God was and always has been interested in the people of all nations. He doesn't just love Israel. He wants all people to be a part of his family. Which I think raises the obvious question, how did Israel miss this point? And the answer comes back to their assumptions. As a nation, Israel assumed that because God chose their forefathers, that they alone were important to him. When God kicked the Canaanites out of the promised land, Israel interpreted it to mean that God loves Israelites and hates Canaanites. Jerusalem was chosen as the location of God's temple, and so again, they assumed that they alone had the privilege of worshipping God. Everyone else merely set up idols, as verse 5 confirms. Israel were given the law and the priesthood. God fought on their behalf. God placed his prophets among them and made promises to them. Everything in their experience seemed to confirm the fact that Israel had a unique privilege that excluded everyone else. And they were partly right. They did have a unique privilege. But when they drew the further conclusion that their unique privilege excluded everyone else, they went badly off course. They assumed that if you wanted to be a part of God's family, you needed to be a part of the nation of Israel. 
And yet in the very act of worshipping God, as they sang this song, Israel were expressing a truth that contradicted their assumption. Thankfully, Psalm 96 has a hidden clue which helps us to understand how Israel made such a mistake. Next to the heading of Psalm 96 in your Bible, it may include a little note saying 1 Chronicles chapter 16 verses 23 to 33. If you read that passage later, what you'll find is that Psalm 96 was sung when the Ark of the Covenant was first brought up to Jerusalem. It was one of the most important days in all of Israel's history. In the minds of everyone present, the Ark coming to Jerusalem made a statement that God was enthroned in Jerusalem. And so Psalm 96 was sung as a declaration of victory, a a song rejoicing that Israel's greatness would continue to expand until it conquered the whole world. Why would all the earth sing to the Lord? Verse 1. Well, because Israel was going to become the undisputed number one nation of the world. Now, for a very brief time under David's and then Solomon's reign, it looked like this might be the case. But after Solomon, things went very badly. Rather than becoming the greatest nation on earth, they were defeated both from within and without, eventually becoming prisoners of war. Yet even when they were at their lowest point, Israel held on to the belief that it was just a matter of time until God would make them rulers of the world again, which further proves just how hard assumptions are to overcome. No doubt some amongst the Israelites learnt their lesson, acknowledging their pride and sin that had led to their punishment. But even exile could be thought of as a mere postponement of the promise. After Israel's decline and defeat, the nation had eventually been allowed to return to the promised land, which meant that the first step had been taken back towards greatness. That they remained under foreign rule just meant that they needed to take a few more steps until they got there. This thinking remained foundational even until the time when our second passage was written. When we read about the events in Acts chapter 11, we have skipped forward in time more than a thousand years since David was king and the original singing of Psalm 96. It would be great to know exactly how long after Jesus' ascension, Acts chapter 11 takes place, but we are not given that information. It might have been weeks or possibly even years if church tradition is correct. The important point is that I think many of us assume that Jesus' coming changed everything instantaneously. And from one perspective, that is absolutely correct. Nothing can be added. No further developments need to take place. When Jesus died and rose again, the price for every person from every nation to enter the family of God was paid in full. But at the same time, we need to realise that long-held Jewish assumptions were not dropped the moment Jesus rose from the dead. The answer to our question, who does God welcome into his family, initially became even more complicated than it had been. While the Gospels give us hints that Gentiles, that is non-Jews, sought out Jesus during his ministry, initially after Jesus returned to the Father, the early church was completely Jewish, 100% no exceptions. Acts chapter 2 tells us that thousands of Jews from all around the world soon recognised that Jesus was Israel's Messiah, the anointed rescuer, coming to establish God's kingdom as number one again. 
But no one at that point made the connection that this was good news for the Gentiles too. What came about first was a conflict between Jews. Some thought that as Jews they were automatically included in God's family because of their nationality. To be Jewish was to be in God's family. But others realised that the most important thing is not where you were born, but that you are born again. It is not until chapter 10, a third of the way through the book of Acts, that the first recorded Gentiles accept Jesus' death in their place. And if we had the time, it would be great to go through the details of chapters 10 and 11 to see everything that took place. The extraordinary steps that God goes to to get Peter to even talk to a Gentile. The blunt, even offensive way that Peter initially interacts with them. The dawning realisation, probably as he is speaking to them, that God does not show favouritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. Peter is the first person to share the gospel with someone who is not a Jew, and he does so without any planning or even desire to take the message to them. You could say that the first cross-cultural missionary is an accidental one, and yet the result is unanimous. Everyone who hears trust in Jesus. God graciously sends the Holy Spirit on them, enabling Gentiles to speak in tongues, just as it happened at Pentecost, which you think would be the trigger for unrestrained joy. This is exactly why people go cross-culturally today, that people would hear the gospel and accept Jesus as their Saviour and King. But have a look at the response that took place in chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea, the believers throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. No praising God, no celebration, no rejoicing that that Psalm 96 was finally coming true. Instead, there is only criticism and and pointing out what they considered to be inappropriate behaviour. Remember that this is Christians who are accusing Peter, Jews who have recognised their own need for God's grace. And yet, while they've realised that they can't be saved by keeping all the rules, they are still operating under their old assumptions that Gentiles are dirty and don't deserve to be a part of God's family. This assumption was so strongly ingrained into them that the possibility of Gentiles being included as a part of God's family was beyond imagining. And so Peter tells them what happened to prove that it is true. He tells them of the vision that he received from God, of the miraculous arrival of men from Caesarea who who brought an extraordinary account of an angel sending them to fetch Peter that while he was still sharing the news about Jesus, the Holy Spirit had come on the Gentiles. Peter gives his own conclusion that God had given the Gentiles the exact same gift they had received, and so who was Peter to stand in God's way? And with the extra information that Peter provides, they are persuaded. While a hint of the shock they were undoubtedly still feeling remains, those who had opposed Peter have no further objections. They even praise God, verse 18, along the lines of, 
I can't believe that God has enabled even Gentiles to trust in Jesus. It's probably not a line that you're going to include in the follow-up song to Psalm 96, is it? They're glad that Gentiles are included in God's family, but I'm not sure how welcome you would feel as a Gentile. We might laugh at how stubbornly the early Jewish Christians held to their assumptions. We might chuckle at how God had to drag the church into the task of making Jesus known across cultures. But before we get too cocky, let's ask ourselves, how has the fact that God welcomes people from all nations into his family impacted my life? If it is an undeniable fact that everyone is welcome in God's family, what observable differences has that made to you? There are so many possibilities that we could consider, but I want to suggest just four areas as a start. Firstly, how does it impact on your prayer life? If my biological brother or sister was being bombed by a rogue government, there is absolutely no way that I could remain prayerless. So when even the secular news tells us of some of the crimes being committed against our brothers and sisters in Myanmar and Afghanistan, how can it be any different? Doesn't my level of prayerlessness expose my lack of family connectedness? What assumptions are present that lead to my silence? One thing that my family has done to change this is getting the bi-monthly prayer guide from Barnabas Fund. Each night we learn about and pray together for persecuted brothers and sisters all around the world. It has been eye-opening, at times heartbreaking, and fantastic as a tool for keeping us consistent. You don't have to use this one. There are heaps of resources that are freely available. Get any of them and get praying. Pray for the mission partners we support as a church. Come along to the mission prayer meeting that will take place on Zoom. If we believe that God welcomes people from all nations into his family, then we will pray. Secondly, how do we relate to those who are from different backgrounds in our own neighbourhood? Rather than having to go to the nations, the nations have now come to us. And so if you have a neighbour from a different culture or meet someone at work or at school with a different background, get to know them. If all people are welcome in God's family, then anyone you meet, no matter what language they speak, no matter how they dress, no matter how different they are to you, is welcome in God's family. We need to grasp the opportunity that God has given us. At WBC, we get to see a small preview of the future when all nations will worship God together. Language and culture remain practical reasons why our congregations at WBC meet separately most of the time. And there is enormous value in doing church in our heart language and in ways that suit the culture we're most comfortable in. But what more can we do to make the most of the fact that God has put diverse people together? My experience in Thailand and the experience of many others says that there are a host of things that we can teach one another, challenge one another in, be of help to one another in. Different cultures see the world differently, are really good at doing certain things or expressing certain characteristics. Being exposed to others different from ourselves can challenge us to become better people. Be used by the Holy Spirit to expose blind spots we were previously unaware of. 
But if we don't make the effort to get to know one another, those connections and opportunities will never take place. We remain independent of one another and we miss out on the blessing. Thirdly, and I won't say much about this because it is spoken of more clearly in other passages, but if God welcomes people from all nations into his family, is there any evidence of this truth in your wallet? One of the blessings of living in Australia is the financial abundance that we all have. If all of that blessing is staying with us, then in practice we are denying that God desires people from all nations in his family. Some of the weekly collection at WBC does get allocated to cross-cultural ministry, both here in Australia and overseas. But I guarantee you that your level of interest in a missionary or a people group will rise if you are directly giving money towards them. If you are not already investing financially in making Jesus known across cultures, then it's time to get a new financial advisor. Finally, there is no indication in our passages that those who initially opposed Peter now joined him in taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Cross-cultural ministry didn't even become Peter's main priority ministry. Galatians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul wrote that they recognized that I, Paul, had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. To live in light of the truth that God wants people from all nations in his family does not mean that we all must go to another culture to share the gospel until the day that we die. But it also doesn't allow us to assume that God won't ask us to do that. It might sound like a dangerous prayer, but have you ever said to God, God, if you want me to go, then send me. I love Wollongong and being close to family and all the benefits that come with living in Australia, but if you want me somewhere else to share the good news of Jesus with others, then I'm willing to go wherever you want me to go. Now, he may answer that he wants you to stay exactly where you are, but maybe he won't. Pray it anyway. And I think we need to pray this prayer communally too. A biblical church will be a missionary sending church. And so we can give thanks for the heritage we have at WBC and those who are currently serving in all sorts of ways. But we must also pray, continuing to expect that God will set aside others too. If we ever assume that this is only a possibility for others, then I say as I did at the start, making assumptions can be a dangerous thing. God wants people from all nations in his family. Do we share his desire? Let's pray. Almighty God of the nations, we thank you that you have made it so clear that you have revealed over time that you want people from all nations to be a part of your family. You've given us insight in your word that that we can know that in the end, there's a certain future that people from every nation will be worshipping Jesus around the throne. And so knowing that truth, we pray that you would break down the assumptions that prevent us from lining up our lives with this truth. Break through our thinking, break through our practices so that we will live in a way that demonstrates that we truly believe and are acting upon this truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.